What's up, Ninja Nerds? We have a new podcast today. We're going to be talking about acute kidney injury, or AKI. We got a lot in store for today, so it's going to be tons of fun. Zach, how you doing, man? <laughs> I'm having tons of fun. Ready All to get right. going, baby. Let's get doing it. <laughs> Again, guys, NinjaNerd.org. Grab your subscription. Get your notes. Get your illustrations. Follow along. We got so many things we release every week. Stay in tune with us with our What's New page uh, and uh, really learn a lot. Zach, let's go ahead and lead off here. AKI, we got a lot of things to go over. Let's start with the causes. We're going to try and go through in a systematic approach with uh, pre-renal, intra-renal, and post-renal. So let's, let's get to it. Let's do it, man. So awesome. Uh, when we talk about acute kidney injury, AKI, we can actually divide this into three kind of categories, pre, intra, and post, like Rob said. One of the big ways that we can honestly easily define these is pre-renal AKI is just it's an acute kidney injury that's due to a decreased blood flow. So the blood flow to the actual renal art, like through the renal artery into the actual glomeruli is reduced in some way, shape, or form. And we'll talk about what those causes are that actually reduced renal blood flow. The other one is intrarenal AKI, and that's actually an acute kidney injury that's due to the damage to the actual renal parenchyma. So think about the components of the nephron, like, for example, your kidney tubules, your Bowman's capsule, and other nearby associated structural tissues, like the interstitial fluid between the kidney tubules. So that's intrarenal AKI. The last one is post-renal AKI, and this is an AKI or acute kidney injury that's due to an obstruction or uh, basically a reduction of urine flow. So usually this is after outside of the kidney. So as you go into the ureter, into going into the bladder, into the urethra. So that's kind of the basic component of the AKI for post-renal. So again, pre-renal AKI is the actual acute kidney injury due to a reduction in renal blood flow. Intrarenal AKI is damage to the actual kidney tube or the interstitial fluid around it. And then post-renal AKI is an obstruction that's reducing the actual urine outflow at the level of the ureter, the urethra, the bladder, okay? So when we get into these, there's the different causes for each one of these, pre-renal, intrarenal, and post-renal. For pre-renal, there's a reduction in blood flow, and this could be due to maybe not having enough volume of blood in the actual vasculature. So imagine you have a reduction in total amount of blood volume that's inside of your actual circulation. And if there's a reduction in the actual blood volume that's moving through the vasculature, that means that there's less amount of blood that's actually flowing via the renal artery into the actual glomerulus. So what are the conditions that reduce your actual blood volume? Well, one of these is you could actually have a reduction and what's called effective arterial blood volume. So this is like the amount of actual blood that's circulating through the actual bloodstream is reduced. This could be due to whenever you have a heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. So in patients who have a really reduced heart uh, ejection fraction, they don't have as much cardiac output, which reduces their actual mean arterial pressure and their effective arterial blood volume. The other one is liver failure. So in liver failure, they have a reduction in their albumin proteins. And so albumin is important because it helps to be able to keep water inside of the bloodstream. If there's less albumin, that means that you're not able to hold on to the water and so water kind of leaks into the actual uh, interstitial fluid. The other one is nephrotic syndrome. That's another way of losing albumin, but you just lose it through the kidney. And so because of that, you lose the ability to hold onto water inside of the vasculature. Acute pancreatitis is another one where it causes a massive inflammation and you actually leak a lot of fluid into your interstitial spaces and into the retroperitoneum. And it's sepsis, massive infection, systemic infection that causes massive vasodilatory and increased capillary permeability that leaks a lot of fluid out into the interstitial spaces. So again, easy ways to remember this is again, reduction in effective arterial blood volume via CHF with a reduced EF. So we also call this cardiorenal syndrome, liver failure and nephrotic syndrome due to reduction in albumin, meaning less water inside of the vasculature, acute pancreatitis and sepsis, which is due to an increased capillary permeability and massive vasodilation that causes a lot of fluid to leak into the interstitial 
interstitial spaces. The other one is that you actually just have a total volume loss. Like the amount of volume that's in your interstitial fluid that's in your, uh, your vasculature is reduced in total, meaning that you're dehydrated. So this can be seen as like, like severe exorcist level vomiting, peeing out of your butthole with diarrhea, massively decreased PO intake because you just aren't, don't have the appetite or you're not feeling like drinking anything, excessive sweating, severe third degree burns, diuretics or blood loss would be the situations where you're having a lot of just total volume loss from the body. The other ones that could actually cause a reduced renal flow uh, besides a decrease in blood volume is if you literally block the actual blood flow. So imagine you have an adequate blood volume, whether it be effective or total, but you have a big, massive blockage that's reducing the flow of blood to the actual glomeruli. This could be due to an embolus, like a clot, like an atrial fibrillation that actually popped off a clot and an emboli got stuck in the renal artery. Or it could be like you have a massive renal artery stenosis, bilateral renal artery stenosis would be a big one, or you have fibromuscular dysplasia, which is common in like young women. So this would be other situations. The last one here is called hepatorenal syndrome. And hepatorenal syndrome is an interesting one where it actually produces what's called renal artery vasoconstriction. So in these patients, they have like, usually you see this in patients with like very significant like liver failure, like cirrhosis. And then they produce a lot of like these vasodilating chemicals that actually produce what's called splanchnic vasodilation, but they produce what's called a reactive renal artery vasoconstriction. And so if you actually cause this intense renal artery vasoconstriction, that reduces the blood flow to the actual kidney and therefore can lead to an acute kidney injury. So again, for pre-renal AKI, reduced blood volume. This could be either just less volume in the vasculature, less total volume throughout the entire body, a clot or obstruction of blood flow, and lastly, hepatorenal syndrome. The next thing we talk about for causes here is your intrarenal AKI. So intrarenal AKI, again, acute kidney injury due to the actual kidney tubules or the interstitial fluid around it. If this is the situation here, the big one that you cannot forget, guys, is acute tubular necrosis. This is the most common type of intrarenal AKI. So this is usually due to actually destruction, death of the actual tubular cells. And so this could happen as a result of a very prolonged period of prerenal AKI. So you know if a patient had like sepsis, or they had heart failure or something like that. And, or they had like, let's say their blood pressure was like crazy high. And then you drop their blood pressure pretty significantly. You reduce the blood flow to their actual kidney tubules at the point where they actually can die. That's one particular reason. The other one is nephrotoxic agents. So things that actually cause direct damage to the kidney tubular cells. Aminoglycosides are a big one. Vancomycin, acyclovir, contrast related, like iodinated contrast and gadolinium. Hemolysis. So if somebody has like a massive hemolytic reaction, the myoglobin, I'm sorry, the hemoglobin itself and iron can actually get taken up by the uh, tubular cells and cause direct free radical reactions and destruction of the tubular cells. Rhabdo, where the myoglobin gets taken up into the tubular cells, that can actually cause destruction of the tubular cells. Malignancies can do this directly. Uh, multiple myeloma, and then if you really want to add this one off your exams, ethylene glycol that you see in antifreeze. These can actually cause direct tubular damage. So these are the things that I want you guys to remember for acute tubular necrosis. Again, nephrotoxic agents, hemolysis, rhabdo, malignancies, multiple myeloma, and antifreeze. And then the last one is a reduction in blood flow, so a prolonged period of pre-renal AKI. The other things that can cause an intrarenal AKI is actually inflammation of the actual interstitial fluid around the kidney tubules. And so you can see this is what's called acute interstitial nephritis. So there's a lot of fluid inside of the actual spaces between the kidney tubules, like for example, between like the pre, the proximal convoluted tubule and distal convoluted tubule, between the loop of Henle. In between those areas, there's interstitial fluid. 
And you can actually get that kind of inflamed. And the big things to remember for this is drugs like beta-lactams, um, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Uh, so those particular antibiotics are big ones that cause acute interstitial nephritis. PPIs, so omeprazole, pantoprazole. The other one are like infiltrative diseases that can actually deposit a lot of like non-casein granulomas or proteins into the interstitial fluid, like sarcoidosis, amyloidosis, SLE, and maybe even certain types of infections. But the big ones I think are worth remembering, guys, is the drugs, your beta-lactam antibiotics and your PPIs. The next thing that can also cause an intrarenal AKI besides acute tubular necrosis and acute interstitial nephritis is glomerular nephritis. So for the kidney tubules, you actually have the Bowman's capsule, right? So the Bowman's capsule kind of feeds into the proximal convoluted tubule. So imagine within your Bowman's capsule, you have like a glomerular basement membrane, and then you have the capillaries that are supplying this. If you cause inflammation of the glomerular basement membrane and of the actual Bowman's capsule, that's damaging the kidney tubules. That's going to alter the filtration process. And that's another way that you can cause an intrarenal. AKI. So this is called glomerular nephritis, inflammation of the glomerulus due to certain types of um, hypersensitivity reactions. The last one is you actually cause like clots to get stuck inside of the glomeruli and damage some of the mesangial cells, damage the glomeruli itself due to small little clots. And this is called thrombotic microangiopathies. And they also used to call this Mahas, microangiopathic hemolytic anemias. And this is like your TTP, your HUS, your DIC, and you can even consider like hypertensive emergencies as well. But that'd be for your intrarenal cat. So again, you got acute tubular necrosis, acute interstitial nephritis, glomerular nephritis, and thrombotic microangiopathies as causes for intrarenal AKI. The last one is your post-renal AKI and probably the easiest one to be able to pick out. So again, think about where the actual problem is, an obstruction after the kidney. So that's the ureter, the bladder, the urethra. So if that's the case, think about something that would actually block up the ureters. If you had like a tumor sitting with inside of the actual ureter, that could be a cause. So you have some type of like urothelial cancer of the ureter, or you have a big kidney stone that's stuck in your actual ureters. That would be another thing that's obstructing the urine flow. All right. So the next thing is if we go down to the next part. So ureters... We have an obstruction to urine flow from a tumor or a renal calculus. Next thing is bladder urethra. What could be obstructing urine flow from that situation, causing a backflow, right? Which can, again, injure the actual kidneys. In this situation, think about your prostate gland. The prostate gland can actually squeeze around the urethra and then reduce the urine outflow from the bladder, so BPH, or prostate cancer. The other one is if you have like a stricture within your urethra, that's going to reduce the amount of urine flow out of the urethra and obviously into the toilet bowl. So in that situation, think about that as another one. The other thing is if you have like a Foley catheter in and the Foley's like kinked or it's like non-functioning or it's like clotted off with sediment, that would actually cause a reduction in urine flow as well. That's probably one of the biggest ones that you can see. And then the other one is there's something wrong with the bladder where the bladder is not contracting. So the bladder isn't contracting to be able to empty urine out of the bladder and into the actual urethra. And that could be in situations like a neurogenic bladder, like there's actually some type of reduction in contractility of the detrusor muscle, or there's drugs that are inhibiting it, like anticholinergic medications. That would be the big things to consider for this one. But that would cover the causes and the basic definition of AKIs, Rob. All right. Then let's go ahead and move into pathophysiology, talk about some clinical findings, and then get some complications right after that. All right, so when we talk about the kind of pathophysiology behind these AKIs, so pre-renal, it's important to remember that the kidney tubules are intact. It has nothing to do with the kidney tubules. So those are intact, just a reduction in renal blood flow. Whereas in intrarenal AKI, the kidney tubules are actually damaged and they can't reabsorb and secrete substances. That's a big, big thing to be able to remember. For pre-renal, kidney tubules are intact, they can secrete and reabsorb. For intrarenal, they're damaged, they cannot secrete or reabsorb substances. Now, what would this look like? So if you have a pre-renal AKI, 
GI, because your reduction in GFR is due to a decreased in renal perfusion, less blood flow, what happens is if you have a reduction in your GFR, you don't filter as many of the plasma substances into the kidney tubule. So in other words, you don't filter as much urea and creatinine out of the blood and into the kidney tubule. So they're built up a little bit in the blood. So you build up urea, you build up creatinine in the blood as a result of a reduced renal perfusion and a reduced GFR. But then you get to the kidney tubules. The kidney tubules are supposed to be able to play a role within reabsorption and secretion. Are they intact in pre-renal? Yes. So what happens is, is since the kidney tubules are intact, they can reabsorb the urea and they can secrete the creatinine. But because they actually can secrete more of the creatinine, what happens is the urea builds up pretty well. Okay. And so it builds up pretty significantly. And we actually consider this to point where the BUN over the creatinine ratio is greater than 20 to one. And the reason why is you build up both the urea and creatinine in the blood because of reduction in GFR due to a reduction in renal perfusion. You can reabsorb a little bit of the urea because the kidney tubules are intact. If you're reabsorbing urea, now urea that was in the blood prior and the one that you just reabsorbed bumps it up even more. And then you can secrete creatinine. So the creatinine that was in the blood already, you're going to start secreting some of it into the urine. So that loaders, lowers the amount of creatinine in the blood and increases the BUN within the blood. And so that's why the BUN over creatinine ratio will be greater than 20 to 1. Here's the other thing that's important to remember. Because the kidney tubules are intact and they reabsorb urea, urea creates an osmotic gradient that pulls with it sodium and water into the bloodstream. Now, here's why this is important. Whenever you have a reduction in the the GFR because of a reduced renal perfusion, your kidney tubules, I'm sorry, your uh, juxtaglomerular apparatus senses that as though there's a low perfusion and it activates the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And so what happens is since the kidney tubules are intact, they actually will respond to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone aldosterone system. So you know what happens is is, uh, aldosterone and ADH work to be able to do what? Increase the reabsorption of sodium and increase the reabsorption of water across the kidney tubules. That'll increase the patient's blood volume, increase their blood pressure, and increase their GFR as a negative kind of like feedback mechanism there. So again, it's important to remember BU and creatinine ratio greater than 20 to 1 because the tubules are intact and because the renin angiotensin aldosterone system is on and the kidney tubules can respond to that because aldosterone ADH released, they will reabsorb the sodium and the water. So that means that if you can reabsorb sodium and water across the kidney tubes, that means that you'll have less sodium in the urine then, right? And because of that, if there's less sodium in the urine, what happens is the urine osmolarity will become greater than 500. And then your urine sodium, the urine sodium will be very low, less than 20 in the urine because it is being reabsorbed. And so we say that they can have a phenol a fractional excretion of sodium less than 1%. So again, for pre-renal, BUN over creatinine 20 to 1. Because the kidney tubules are intact, they can respond to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So they reabsorb sodium. So less sodium ends up in the actual urine. So urine osmoles are going to be greater than 500. And their urine sodium is going to be low, less than 20. And their phenol is going to be low, less than 1. So the fractional excretion of sodium in the urine is going to be low. Okay. I hope that made sense. Let's talk about this with intrarenal AKI. The kidney tubules are damaged. Their GFR is because they have a lot of pressure in their tubular system. What happens is you killed some of their actual tubular cells. And then those tubular cells slough off into the lumen and then plug up the actual kidney tubular lumen. So now your kidney tubules can't actually kind of excrete the creatinine and the urea into the urine as well. 
So they build up in the blood. So now you have an increase in urea and you have an increase in creatinine in the blood. But on top of that, my friends, your kidney tubes are damaged. Can they reabsorb urea? No. Can they secrete the actual creatinine? No. So because of that, they have a lot of urea, but they have even more creatinine in the blood. So their BUN to creatinine ratio will be less than or equal to 15 to 1. Now, here's the next thing. Because the urea can't be reabsorbed, they don't pull the sodium and water as well across the actual kidney tubules. But think about this again. What happens if you have a reduction in GFR? A reduction in GFR will do what? Trigger your renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. Aldosterone and ADH are supposed to do what? Reabsorb sodium and water. If your kidney tubules are intact. What did I say the kidney tubules are? Not intact. They're damaged. Will they respond to the aldosterone and ADH? No. Will they reabsorb sodium and water into the blood and then have less sodium in the urine? No. So guess what you're going to have a lot of in the urine? A lot of urine sodium and a lot of water in the urine. Because of that, the urine osmolarity will be less than 350 and they'll have a lot of sodium in their urine. So they'll have a high urine sodium greater than 20 and their fractional excretion of sodium will be greater than 2%. So that is important to remember for these patients. The last thing is your post-renal AKI. The easiest way to remember this is early post-renal. Um, so in patients who have like uh, the early stage of post-renal AKI, it looks just like a pre-renal AKI. And in the later stages of the post-renal AKI, it resembles an intra-renal AKI. That's all I want you to remember. Don't go too far down the rabbit hole of that. Okay. That would be the pathophysiology of AKI, right? So quick summary for pre-renal, BUN creatinine greater than 20 to 1. For intrarenal, BUN creatinine less than or equal to 15 to 1. For the urine sodium, for particularly the pre-renal, it's going to be low. Their fractional excretion of sodium is going to be low. For the intrarenal, their urine sodium is going to be high. Their fractional excretion of sodium is going to be high. Kidney tubules damaged in intrarenal, kidney tubules intact and pre-renal. I hope that makes sense. And then for the post-renal, early post-renal looks like pre-renal, late post-renal, Looks like intrarenal. Okay, what do you what do you think, Rob? We think we're okay right now. <laughs> I, I think that makes perfect sense. It's okay. pretty, pretty cool actually how the post renal has almost a little bit of both. Yeah, uh, yeah. pre and intra in there. So, it is pretty cool. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And uh, thank you for that explanation. How about a couple complications? All right. So when we talk about acute kidney injury, so one of the problems with this is that your patients are going to be having a reduction in their urine output. If they have an acute kidney injury, their kidneys aren't doing a very good job of being able to maintain a good GFR. There's a reduction in the glomerular filtration rate, which can lead to a reduction in urine output. And so this can look like oliguria, right? Where a patient makes like maybe less than like 400 like cc's of urine within a 24 hour period, or maybe even to the point of like severe anuria, where they're making like very little urine to almost like no urine within an entire 24 hour period. The problem with that is when you're not urinating out substances or excreting substances into the urine, you can build them up into the blood. And one of the problematic ones that you can build up in the blood is a lot of the actual like metabolic waste products. And this can lead to particularly like urea building up in the blood so much where it causes uremia. So uremia is when the urea builds up so high in the blood that it actually starts causing like pathological effects. One is it loves to be able to inactivate the platelets and prevent them from being able to function properly. And so this can increase the ability of the platelets to form platelet plugs, which is supposed to stop bleeding. Well, you won't. You'll actually end up bleeding. The other one is it also loves to irritate the pericardial tissue and cause a lot of serious inflammation of the pericardium, which can lead to pericarditis, which can lead to like a pericardial effusion. Worst case scenarios, it can even lead to like sometimes a cardiac tamponade. And then the other things 
is that urea, especially if it gets greater than like a hundred, um, it can actually kind of precipitate, like move across the actual blood brain barrier and actually lead to encephalopathy, uh, potentially like asterixis where you have kind of like that flapping tremor of the upper extremities and worst case scenario is seizures. The other thing is that if your kidney tubules aren't working properly because they're damaged, um, you can't excrete out uh, protons. Um, and so because of that, you have the ability to lose, you lose the ability to be able to excrete protons into the urine. That's a problematic issue. And you also won't be able to reabsorb bicarb. That's the other thing. So the kidney tubules actually have to excrete protons and reabsorb bicarb. So imagine you lose the ability to excrete protons, protons build up in the blood, or you lose the ability to reabsorb bicarb. So you don't have as much base in the blood. What does that lead to? acidosis. So if you can't reabsorb bicarb or you can't excrete protons, this can lead to a metabolic acidosis. And this is one of the big ones. Um, and it's it usually it leads to a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, if you want to remember that one. Uh, sometimes it can lead to an anion gap metabolic acidosis, possibly. All right. So with these situations here, if you have an acidosis, one of the problematic issues with this is that it can actually lead to increased risk of arrhythmia. So VTAC, VFib, SVT. It can also cause hypotension, especially one of the big things is that if you have a patient on vasopressors because they're septic or they have something else going on, the vasopressors don't work as well whenever the pH is like less than 7.2. And the other thing is it can cause a lot of electrolyte shifts. Whenever you have a really significant acidosis, it can cause a lot of shifting of potassium and magnesium as well. Um, and so that could be a problematic issue for these patients. Especially it can cause a lot of like uh, protons to go into the cell, which can shift a lot of potassium out of the cell, which can cause like a hyperkalemia. The other thing is it can also cause volume overload. So imagine you're supposed to be able to make urine, get rid of excess volume with the body. That's what the kidneys do. If they aren't being able to make urine, where's all that fluid that's in the urine supposed to go? In their vasculature and in their bodies. So they end up what's called volume overload. And this can precipitate with hypertension. This can present with particularly edema, like pulmonary edema or lower extremity edema, or it can even present potentially like with respiratory distress, right? Within the context of pulmonary edema. The other thing is that drugs. So, you know, if you particularly like if you take particular drugs and, you know, they're supposed to be excreted by the kidney, but now your kidneys are damaged, not able to excrete those drugs into the actual urine because the kidney tubules are damaged for whatever reason. Now you lose that ability to excrete particular drugs into the urine. And so they may accumulate. So think about something like, for example, just worst case scenario, heparin. Um, so if a patient has a low molecular weight heparin that they're taking and they're taking it because they have an increased risk of forming clots for whatever reason. Um, and now they have acute kidney injury and they can't excrete the actual low molecular weight heparin into the urine. It builds up. And now it increases the risk of the person actually being able to bleed. So those are the complications that you could see with these drugs. All right. Accumulating. And then, I'm oh, sorry, last one here is uh, if you have- Oh, there's more. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The last thing is that your kidney tubules also it work to be able to excrete potassium, especially in like the uh, distal convoluted tubule um, and a little bit in the proximal convoluted tubule, primarily distal convoluted tubule. So if your kidney tubules are damaged, they don't have the ability to excrete potassium into the urine. Um, and so potassium builds up in the blood and it's called hyperkalemia and then puts you into like cardiac arrest, which is a pretty big one as well. I think I mistook your um, your your pause there, <laughs> yeah. just because you were trying to breathe and like catch yeah. your catch your yeah, breath. it was more like trying not to like pass out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just don't fall over. Yep. No, I got you, man. No worries. Um, awesome, great. So let's move into the lab values then, because this is such a crucial topic that you have to know, especially when being able to differentiate lab values between pre, intra, and post renal AKI. Yeah. So with the lab values, it kind of goes back to the pathophysiology. So let's see if we can remember this stuff. Remember for pre-renal, it's a problem with blood flow it has nothing to do with the kidney tubules. So the kidney tubules are intact. 
But because their renal perfusion sucks, their ability to excrete urea and creatinine into the blood reduces. So their, their BUN will go up and their creatinine will go up. But it's really important to remember what is happening to their actual kidney tubules. Are they able to reabsorb urea? Yes, because they're intact. So what would happen to the amount of urea that would be present in the urine? It would be reduced. What would happen to the amount of creatinine that's present within the urine? It would actually be higher because they're able to excrete the creatinine into the urine because their kidney tubules are intact. So they would have a uh, kind of a higher creatinine within the urine. But because of that, because they're excreting creatinine into the urine and they're reabsorbing urea into the blood, what happens to their BUN creatinine ratio? Well, they have more urea in the blood and they have less creatinine in the blood. So that's greater than 20 to 1, higher numerator in comparison to the denominator. The other thing is, is their kidney tubules able to respond to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system because of their reduction in GFR? Yes, because they're intact. So they, do they reabsorb sodium? Yes. And if they do, that means that their urine sodium will actually be low. Their phena will also be low. All right. Good deal. The next thing is for intrarenal AKI. For intrarenal AKI, what's happening with this situation? So their kidney tubules are damaged. They are not intact. They cannot reabsorb and they cannot excrete. So their GFR sucks in general because of there's being like casts that are getting stuck in the kidney tubules and reducing the actual forward flow of filtrate through the kidney tubules. So it backs up into the blood. So their BUN and their creatinine in the blood increases. Now, are their kidney tubules intact where they can reabsorb urea? No. So because of that, what happens to the urea in the urine? It goes up. Are their kidney tubules intact where they can excrete creatinine? No. So what happens to the creatinine in the urine? It's going to be low because they're not excreting it. So because of that, you have lots of urea that ends up in the bloodstream. But again, you can't reabsorb some of the urea. Creatinine is in the bloodstream because you can't filter it off. But on top of that, you can't secrete the creatinine out of the actual blood into the filtrate. So because of that, the creatinine in the blood increases significantly above the BUN. And so because of that, when you look at the BUN creatinine ratio, in this case, the denominator should be a little bit uh, higher. So BUN divided by creatinine, it'll give you a ratio of less than or equal to 15 to 1. And then because the kidney tubules are not intact, can they respond to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system? No. So can they reabsorb sodium? No. So what will happen to the urine sodium? It'll be high. What will happen to the phena? It'll be high. I hope that made sense. How about post-renal AKI? For post-renal AKI, it really kind of just depends upon the stage. So if okay. we, if you kind of remember, like we said before, for a post-renal, if it's in the early stage, it'll look just like pre-renal. And if it's in the later stage of the post-renal, it'll look just like intra-renal of what we just said. Gotcha. So that really just is the same thing for the lab values. Then. Exactly. Okay. Hopefully I'm not setting you up for a long-winded response here, but I am curious. <laughs> just AKI as in general. Do these lab values, are these comparable to someone with CKD? So that's a great question. I would say that sometimes if you have a patient who has an AKI versus a CKD and you're trying to determine that, it's more applicable to look at their GFR and their albumin, particularly for a patient with CKD, especially over a period of like three months. Um, and sometimes you can have patients who have like a baseline CKD, they have chronic kidney disease, let's say like stage three, and then they come into the hospital because they've been vomiting, like having exorcist level vomiting, and now they have an AKI. They have a bump in their creatinine. 
flattening or bumping their BUN and reduction their urine output way above their baseline creatinine. Um, and so you can see maybe some of these values, especially in a patient who has CKD, but it may just be an acute kidney injury that's on top of yeah. their already present CKD. Um, and again, one of the things I'm not usually a fan of these lab values. They're great for the the boards, but they're oftentimes very not effective or very, they don't yield as much diagnostic value in the clinical world. Oftentimes, I just don't know what to do with these dang things. So there's another thing I utilize to really help me in aiding my diagnosis of um, which type of like AKI it really is. And I'll, I'll teach you guys that, that I used in like the critical care setting. But that's, awesome. yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. That, so well, maybe these numbers are a little bit ambiguous, but yes, you've got yeah. your uh, secret Zach Murphy method that we're all, <laughs> we're all dying to know about. All right, Zach. So let's go ahead and um, let's start up with the diagnosis now. Let's figure out what it is. How do we differentiate? So whenever we have a patient who has, for example, let's say that we're looking at the patient, we're running through their chart, they're in the hospital and you look at their creatinine, their creatinine is bumped. Um, so what do I mean by bumped? Meaning that it's, you have a baseline creatinine. Let's say that you, in, in a perfect world, you knew what their baseline creatinine was and it's greater than or equal to 0.3 milligrams per DL greater than whatever their baseline creatinine is. Or another way is if you have like 1.5 times their baseline creatinine. So if you see a pretty decent jump within their baseline creatinine in comparison to what they have in the past. So for example, let's say that their creatinine about a week ago was 1.21. And now they're in the hospital for something else like pancreatitis and their creatinine is 2.2. That's a massive jump. And I would say that's a worthy, according to the K-DIGO criteria, of being an acute kidney injury. Now, which one is it? Well, with it being pancreatitis, it's probably pre-renal, being that he's probably third spacing and vomiting and having potentially like some diarrhea. So those would be the things I would think about. But that's the first thing. Look at the creatinine. The second thing is maybe the creatinine is like stone cold, like normal, and it's the urine output that's reduced. So if their urine output's really low, because that's also a monitor, a measure, a parameter of kidney function, if it's less than 0.5 cc's per kg for at least greater than or equal to six hours, that's also considered to be an acute kidney injury. The longer you go with that low amounts of urine output, for example, if you go to like 12 hours, that could be like stage two. If you go to like 24 hours, that could be stage three. And if you're going to the point where you're oligurk, it might be like a stage four go acute kidney injury. So I think it's important to be able to understand looking at their BMP, what's their creatinine? What is it in comparison to their baseline? That's the first thing. Second thing is what's their urine output? Have we had good intake and outputs that have been documented? And is it been very low for the past six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours? Are they making no urine? That's the first thing. Once I've found that out, let's say that I have a patient who has a really low urine output or uh, that meets the KDIGO criteria of an AKI, or they have a bump in their creatinine, which also meets the di diagnosis of uh, AKI. First thing I like to do is I like to rule out the easy one, which is the post-renal. Post-renal tends to be the easy one to be able to rule out. So what I like to do is I'd like to go to the bedside and do a renal ultrasound. So I'll smack the ultrasound over the side where the kidneys are and I'll take a look at them. If I see any hydronephrosis, it tells me that there may be something that's blocking the urine outflow at the ureter level, maybe at the bladder level, or maybe at the urethra level. So if I see hydronephrosis, I start evaluating the patient for post-renal AKI. Let's see that I see it. I have hydronephrosis. 
Then what I'll do is I'll look to see if I see any kind of dilation of the ureter on the ultrasound. Do I see that? Do I see a stone? Sometimes maybe I have to do like a CT of their abdomen um, and pelvis to look for the actual stone. But that would be the one thing. Look for a tumor as well. The other thing is I would actually put a bladder scan over them or just put the ultrasound over their actual bladder and see is their actual bladder fully filled with like fluid or urine. And so if, if it's completely distended, they got like a liter of urine in their bladder, then they're not putting that urine out into the actual, like, you know, in this case, onto the foley or whatever it should be. So because of that, that's a potential source as well. Maybe they have like a neurogenic bladder. Maybe there's anticholinergic medications that I got to discontinue or hold off on. If that's the case, that could be another cause. Also, do they have BPA? Do they have like terrible BPH or like a prostate cancer that's compressing on the urethra and reducing it? So those are things that I like to consider. Look at their history, do a renal ultrasound, look at the bladder scan or put the ultrasound over the bladder. The other thing is the Foley. Sometimes the Foley's are just not functioning and you have to like, you know, potentially have the the nurses flush the Foley and put the ultrasound over the bladder and see if you see like a spew of kind of like bubbles coming into the bladder. If that's the case, then you have it in the right place. Um, so sometimes looking to see if the Foley is functioning as well. So again, first thing I see lower urine output, bump in the creat. I check the renal ultrasound, look for hydronephrosis. If I see it, I evaluate for a, again, renal calculus, a tumor, something like the bladder is I could the, put the ultrasound over the bladder. Is their bladder filled with urine? If it is, then they may have some type of retention problem. Is it a neurogenic bladder? Is it anticholinergic meds? Is it a BPH? Is it a prostate cancer? Is it a urethral stricture? And is their Foley not functioning? Flush it, make sure it's in the right place. And if it is, reestablish that flow. That would be the first thing. Let's say that I do the renal ultrasound. I see no hydronephrosis. That kind of argues really against some kind of post-renal AKI. You can then kind of like, like you said, uh, Rob, we could say, well, is this just CKD? If there is like no hydronephrosis and they have a history of CKD, what's really interesting is if you're looking over it, sometimes you see these like small little itty bitty atrophic kidneys, which may be somewhat diagnostic of CKD, but not super. I'd say like it's more based upon the time frame, the GFR, the albumin, but little cool thing there. So AKI, renal ultrasound, look for the hydronephrosis. If you see it, work them up for post-renal AKI. If you do it and you do not see any hydronephrosis and their kidneys are completely normal on the renal ultrasound, then the next thing that you have to establish is, is this a pre-renal or is this an intrarenal AKI? You can consider according to what like, you know, uh, Harrison says, you can do a UA, uh, like a urinalysis with microscopy. And what's kind of interesting about this, let's say that you do that and their UA comes back abnormal. So they have like some white blood cell cast. They got some bacteria that's greater than like 100 per Houndsville unit. Uh, or they have, they have like a couple bacteria that have greater than 100 white blood cells per Houndsville unit on their urine. They got leukocyte esterases. They got nitrites, all that stuff like that. Maybe they got like a pyelonephritis. That's also a possibility. If it came back where they have white blood cell casts and like eosinophils in the urine, it could be an acute interstitial nephritis. If they have red blood cell casts and they're like dysmorphic red blood cells, it could be potentially like a glomerulonephritis or like a vasculitis. You'd have to get a renal biopsy to confirm that. And if they have like those muddy brown casts, that could be like an acute tubular necrosis. To be honest with you, those things are not super like great in true reality. On the exam, they're perfect. But in reality, they're not super helpful. Sometimes, often, you get like a normal urinalysis, um, and really, it doesn't really yield very much. You can check those urine electrolytes if you really wanted to. So this is where you start really kind of uh, potentially on your exam, see questions. So you have a patient, they have normal kidneys, they have no hydro. You do a urinalysis with microscopy to look for some of those key buzz terms. Again, CAS, leukocyte esterase, nitrites, bacteria, white blood cells, pylo, eosinophils, 
you think about um, acute interstitial nephritis, blood with dysmorphic red blood cells, you think about glomerular nephritis. And then again, muddy brown cast, you think about ATM. But if the urinalysis is normal or doesn't really yield very anything significant, you check those urine electrolytes. So you check the urine sodium, you check the phenol, you check the urine creatinine, the check the urine urea. If you do that, you could obviously kind of group them into that category. So for example, if they have a low urine sodium, a low phenol, they have a, um, uh, a low, um, um, uh, sorry, they have a high creatinine in their urine or a low urea in their urine, that would kind of fit them into the category of a pre-renal AKI. If you check it and they have a high urine sodium, they have a high phenol, they have a high amount of urea within their urine, but they have a low amount of creatinine in their urine, that may be more supportive, particularly of an intrarenal AKI. Now, what I think is actually potentially easier to consider, to be honest with you, is I like to do something called the ferrosamide stress test. So what I like to do is I like to give patients, so let's say that I'm kind of between pre-renal and intrarenal, and I have no idea. What I'll do is I'll take their body weight. So let's say that a patient weighs like 100 kilograms. I will give them a 100 milligram bolus of ferrosamide. And what I'll do is I like to see what happens with their urine production. If their kidney tubules are intact, they should diurese. They should make more than 200 cc's of urine within the first two hours because their kidney tubes are intact and they're responding to the ferrosamide. That's what it tells me. If I give them a huge slug of ferrosamide and their kidney tubes are damaged or not intact, they will not respond to the ferrosamide. Therefore, if I give them 100 milligrams of ferrosamide, they will not make more than 200 cc's of urine in the first two hours because their kidney tubules aren't intact. They won't actually respond to the ferrosamide and they won't diurese. That's the way I found it to be relatively easy to be able to determine, is it an intrarenal or an, uh, a pre-renal AKI, to be honest with you? Obviously, look at the clinical context, but that's kind of the best situation there. The last thing that I also would consider is, okay, if it is a pre-renal AKI, I like to think, is it hypervolemic? I like to think about, is it a patient who has CHF, hepatorenal syndrome, nephrotic syndrome, or is it those hypovolemic causes? So diarrhea, vomiting, diuretics, blood loss, pancreatitis, the situations like that. All right. But this is how I do it. All right. So first thing is I look at their BMP. I look at their eyes and O's. Does it support an AKI by low urine output or a bump in the creatinine beyond their baseline? Okay. It does. They have an AKI. Next thing, get your ultrasound, put it over the kidneys. Is there any hydronephrosis? If there is hydronephrosis, you have to figure out why they have a hydronephrosis. Is there a, a stone? Is there a tumor? Then take the ultrasound, put it over their bladder. Is it filled with urine? In other words, do they have a neurogenic bladder, anticholinergic medications? Is there BPH, a prostate cancer, or urethral stricture? Is their Foley not working? It's kinked up. It's not in the right place. If I've gone through all of those and I've ruled all of that stuff out, it's not post-renal. It's now has to be pre-renal or intrarenal. You don't need to do the UA. You don't need to do the urine electrolytes. Just do the ferrosamide stress test. So you give them one milligram per kilogram of body weight of ferrosamide. If they make less than 200 cc's of urine in the first two hours, it's intrarenal. If they make more than 200 cc's per um, 
uh, within the first two hours. It is going to be pre-renal. That's it. From there, you can kind of further figure out what's the cause of their, you know, intrarenal. Is it acute tubular necrosis? Is it acute interstitial nephritis? Is it glomerular nephritis? Is it, you know, a thrombotic microangiopathy? Oh, is there a pre-renal? Is it a reduction in effective arterial blood volume? Is it a reduction in total blood volume? Is it a big clot within their renal artery? Uh, and so in those situations, I think it's important to kind of go down those lists afterwards. But that's the easy way I go about trying to diagnose these, Rob. All right. Let's go ahead and wrap this podcast episode up. Let's talk about treatment, how we uh, help these patients out, a little bit of a tidbit on dialysis, and uh, we'll call it a day. I like it. All right, so treatment. For pre-renal AKI, big things that I want you guys to remember, if you guys remember the reduction of effective arterial blood volume, that included the cardiorenal syndrome due to CHF. It included the hepatorenal syndrome, potentially. We also talked about uh, nephrotic syndrome. We talked about... Um, uh, like pancreatitis and sepsis in those situations. And then we talked about the reduction in total blood volume, like in a patient who has uh, diarrhea, vomiting, diuretics, blood loss, um, burns, situations like that. So with these, I think the first thing is if you have a patient who has cardiorenal syndrome, so you know that they have heart failure and it's their likely cause of an acute kidney injury, it actually is diuretics. So what happens is the patient is actually having congestion. So imagine, for example, your heart is not pumping blood out. It's backing up from the right atrium into the inferior vena cava, across the inferior vena cava, and into like the renal veins. Now the kidney can't actually get blood out of it. And so it's kind of backing up and congesting the kidney. And that can actually cause an acute kidney injury. And it's a pre-renal type. And so what we would do with that is we would actually diurese them to pull fluid off of them. And that would actually help to reduce the, um, again, a lot of that congestion. The other thing is if you're trying to squeeze the heart more, get more blood out of the heart so it's not backing up into the uh, IVC and into the renal veins, is you could give them like inotropic agents or like vasopressors. For a paddle renal syndrome, the problem is splanchnic vasodilation and reactive renal artery vasoconstriction. So what I could do for that is I could give them octreotide and midodrine. So octreotide helps to be able to reduce some of the actual kind of like splanchnic, uh, you know, vaso uh, constriction, uh, vasodilation effect and helps to be able to uh, alter the uh, blood flow through the hepatic portal system. And the midodrine also helps to be able to potentially work to, again, help to cause splanchnic artery vasoconstriction. Albumin helps to be able to pull some of the water into the actual vasculature so that we can improve the renal perfusion. The next one is sepsis. So if you have a patient who's septic um, and they're actually having a, um, a pre-renal ACAB because of that, it often tends to be like IV fluids, um, vasopressors, and then obviously antibiotics to reduce the bacteria from continuing to cause vasodilation and increased capillary permeability. And then for those patients who are hypovolemic, uh, encourage fluid intake. So PO intake and IV fluids. So oftentimes what people obviously think of is whenever you have a patient who has a pre-renal AKI, it's always given IV fluids. That could be the potential situation if a patient's truly hypovolemic or they're septic. Uh, but for a patient with cardiorenal syndrome, that'll actually make it worse. So you need to consider diuretics or things that are going to squeeze the heart more. And then a paddorenal syndrome it has nothing to do with fluids. It's all due to the actual reactive renal artery vasoconstriction and splanchnic vasodilation. So you have to address that via octreotide and midodrine. So just remember that. For intrarenal AKI, fluids are not necessarily going to help the patient that could actually worsen that, their situation. It's important to remember for intrarenal AKI, you have to treat the underlying cause. If it's an acute tubular necrosis, think about the nephrotoxins, aminoglycosides, vancomycin, you may have to discontinue them or hold those medications. If it's hemolysis, you have to treat their underlying hemolysis. If it's rhabdomyolysis, you have to give them IV fluids. Um, if it's to, uh, what's called what's called tumor lysis syndrome, you actually have to tie up some of the uric acid molecules 
molecules via a drug called rasburicase. If it's multiple myeloma, which is actually causing a lot of antibodies to destroy the actual kidney tubules, then I would actually consider something like chemotherapy. If it's an acute interstitial nephritis, what were the particular drugs? Those are those beta-lactams in the PPI. I would discontinue those. Maybe consider some steroids to reduce the hypersensitivity reaction. And then if it's a thrombotic microangiopathy or glomerulonephritis, which is due to like TTP or HUS or some type of like glomerulonephritis, in those situations, it may be beneficial to consider something like steroids plus or minus like a DMARD. The last one is your post-renal AKI. So in these patients, the most common causes are going to be BPH some type of tumor or like a kidney stone, and then medications. So do they have BPH? Is there a history of BPH? Alpha blockers, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors will be something to start, but it's going to take some time before they kick in. So sometimes putting in a Foley catheter may be the best thing to be able to help to maintain some good urine outflow. The other thing is if they have like a tumor or some type of stone that's obstructing the ureter, you may have to go in and be able to stent that. And if they aren't candidate for stents, you may have to actually put in a kind of like a tube into their kidneys and drain their urine out that way uh, called a percutaneous nephrostomy. And then lastly, if they have any medications which could potentially worsen their neurogenic bladders or reduce the contraction of their detrusor muscle, discontinue those, especially your anticholinergic agents. The last thing I would say, guys, is if you have a patient especially intrarenal AKI, who has an AKI that you've tried to treat accordingly and they're still getting worse. They're starting to have very, very bad AKI where their urine output is pretty much nil. They're anuric. They're not making any urine. They have uremia. They have metabolic acidosis. They have volume overload. They have drug accumulation. They have hyperkalemia. They have all of these complications this would be an indication for dialysis. So you can remember like the, you ever heard of that, Rob, A-E-I-O-U? So it's acidosis, electrolyte abnormalities, intoxication, which is the drug accumulation, O for volume overload, and U for uremia. If they have any of those, they meet the indication for dialysis. If you treated the underlying condition to the best of your ability and they're still having these complications, you consider dialysis. There's I two. I would say I've never heard of that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, but that would be the easy way to remember those. If you have a patient who's a candidate for dialysis, there's two types. You can do something called CRRT. Uh, this is called continuous renal replacement therapy. And really the benefit of this is it really allows for a very slow pulling of the actual fluid uh, to re- alleviate the volume overload, the acidosis, the uremia, the drug accumulation, all of those situations or the hyperkalemia. So it's good for those patients who really their blood pressure wouldn't allow for them to have this, like they're hemodynamically unstable, probably would go for the CRRT. If you're doing intermittent hemodialysis, though, you're pulling off way larger volumes of fluid in kind of a short period of time. So you only have to do this like maybe three times a week. Um, For CRT, you would pretty much do this like throughout the entire day, pulling off slow volumes, like 100 cc's. For intermittent hemodialysis, you're pulling off large volumes in a kind of a one-time sitting. So not really good for those patients who are hemodynamically um, unstable. I would say it's more for those hemodynamically robust patients, really, who I'd consider intermittent hemodialysis for. But that would be everything for uh, AKI if it wasn't already enough. <laughs> ah, no, we're just getting started. I'm, I'm having so much fun here. That was awesome. Great episode. Loved it. Um, information overload, but again, always thorough. Thank you, Zach. That was great. Thanks, uh, buddy. Any closing thoughts here? 
Yeah. So AKI is a tough disease. I think if you're, you're a person who's going to be working um, in the emergency department, who's going to be working in uh, internal medicine, ICU, this will be a very, very common disorder that you will encounter. And so it's really important to know this very well. One of the big things I would urge you guys to consider just because it's one of my pet peeves is if a patient has an acute kidney injury, don't just automatically load them with IV fluids and keep loading and loading and loading to the point where they're volume overloaded and now they have pulmonary edema and they, you have to go on CRT now. Um, it's important to try to really analyze why the person has this bump in their creatinine, this reduction in their urine output, and have a very thoughtful diagnostic framework and process that you're going to approach them with. And do it that way every single time. Even though it may seem super obvious which one it is, really go through and have that diagnostic approach of the ultrasound, going over the kidneys, the bladder, looking at the medication list, doing the ferrosamide stress. If you really want to and you can interpret them well, you can consider those urine electrolytes. I don't think they're going to provide that much value, but consider them. And once you've figured out what the cause is, treat that thing. If they're not getting any better or they're developing any of the A E-I-O-U complications you take and get them on dialysis as soon as you can. I hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast. I hope it made sense. And as always, until next time. 